Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. That's michael at C-O-C-O-R-I-S dot com. Now, let's hear from Mike. The title of this message is Kiss Some and Avoid the Others. If I saw that in the bulletin, I'd think to myself, that must be a talk about what a father should say to his daughter or maybe even his son. I could see me doing that sitting down with one of my daughters about dateable age and saying, look, uh, you got to understand what a kiss means. Uh, you don't just kiss everybody. Uh, you only kiss those that you love. A kiss is a symbol of affection and love. So take it from your father. You're not supposed to kiss everybody. Uh, you for sure should avoid some people. I could even imagine me saying that to my son. Come to think of it, I have a son and several daughters, and I had just those conversations with each of them. Uh, son needs to know there are seductive women abroad, and uh, girls need to know that uh, you don't trust every man that comes down the street. <clears throat> so when I saw the title, Kiss Some and Avoid Others, I thought, Make a good little uh, speech that a father would give his children. Well, that message is in the Bible, and it is not from a father to his children at all. Of all things, it's from what we would call today a pastor to a church. It is a church that's being instructed to kiss some and totally avoid not just kissing, totally avoid others. And you mean to say that uh, the kiss is a literal kiss? Right. And the avoiding is actual avoiding, not just kissing, but contact? I mean, what kind of message is that for a church? Well, turn with me to Romans chapter 16, and I'll show you. Romans chapter 16 and I'm going to begin reading with verse 16. Romans chapter 16, verse 16. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ greet you. Now, I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them. For those who do such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own bellies, and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. For your obedience has become known to all. Therefore, I am glad on your behalf, but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace 
of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. It's very obvious that in verse 16, the Apostle Paul instructs a church to greet one another with a holy kiss. Kiss some. And then, in the very next verse, he says, but there are some people you ought to avoid. Now, those two simple, seemingly contradictory points are what I want us to talk about. The fact that the Bible says we are to kiss some and we are to avoid others. Let's take them one at a time. Actually, verse 16 says, greet one another with a holy kiss. You back up 15 verses to the beginning of this chapter and follow the flow down through the chapter until you get to verse 16, you will discover that much, if not most, of what is here is an exhortation to greet. Just look at the passage. Verse 3, greet. Verse 6, greet. Verse 7, greet. Verse 8, greet. Verse 9, greet. Verse 10, verse 11, verse 12, verse 13, verse 14, verse 15. Repeatedly, Paul says that they are to greet various individuals, both men and women, in the congregation at Rome. Then he gets down to the end of that section and he says in verse 16, greet one another. Now thus far he has said, greet specific individuals for me. Now he is telling them to greet one another. Let's just pause right there for a second. We ought to greet one another not avoid one another. When you go to church, you are to greet one another. Did you ever go to church and avoid somebody? Don't answer that. Who of us hasn't? You go in the door that you are sure they won't go in because you won't have to greet them. It may not be because you're mad at them or angry at them. You just maybe try to avoid them because you don't like them. Or they will uh, tangle you up in conversation or try to sell you something. Did you ever go to church and be hit by the church salesman? I think there are some people who deliberately choose to go to big churches so they can get lost in the crowd. Did you ever do that? Or did you ever go to church late deliberately so you could sneak in and sit on the back row without anybody seeing you and then leave before the benediction so you wouldn't have to greet anybody? I'm almost embarrassed to tell you this, but... Um, <laughs> and there was a time in my life where I did that. I was a traveling speaker and got very involved in a local church that my family attended and we were members of, but it got to the place where I couldn't go to church without spending the next two hours answering theological questions. Now that was super. I loved it. Uh, I enjoyed that immensely, it, just that it was too much. I got to be the resident theologian of the congregation and every time I poked my head in the door, six people would line up to ask me to explain some doctrine or some passage. So 
there were occasions when I found myself going to church a little late and sneaking in the back door and sitting on the back row and listening to the service and enjoying it and then sneaking out before anybody saw that I was there. Ever done anything like that? Well, the Scripture says we're not to do that. That when you go to church, you are to greet one another. But this passage specifically says you are to greet one another with a kiss. Can that be literal? Is he serious? What does he mean? You are to greet one another with a kiss. Imagine instituting that into the modern church. Does the New Testament really say that we are to kiss one another? I want you to put your finger in Romans chapter 16, and I want you to um, follow me through the New Testament for a second. For example, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Very next book in your New Testament. Same chapter, chapter 16. And look at verse 20. Sure enough, Paul says to the church at Corinth, greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, as we know, the church at Corinth um, was a little slow sometime, so I had to write them a second letter. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. He told them that at the end of his first letter. And at the end of his second, he said, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12, same identical statement. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Very interesting. Paul wrote to a church at Thessalonica. So turn over with me a few more pages to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And look at verse 26. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 26 says, Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. Ouch. It's getting worse. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 5 and look at verse 14. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Wow. At least five times the New Testament instructs Christians to greet one another with a kiss. It is explicitly said to be all the brethren, and the kiss is to be a kiss of love. One other observation. It says that it is to be a holy kiss. That's spelled out in Romans 16, 16, and in several of those other verses as well. So this is not a romantic kiss. The Scripture is certainly not encouraging anything out of line, anything improper in any way. But nonetheless, the Scripture clearly teaches that we are to greet one another with a kiss. There is no two ways about that. Now, I am aware that uh, 
someone will quickly jump up and say, yes, but men are supposed to kiss men and women are to kiss women. I'm not arguing the point. Apparently, in the first century, it was the men who kissed the men and women who kissed women. My point is that they kissed each other. I'd like to ask, what happened to the kiss? Why don't we reinstitute the kiss? Where did it go? Chuck Swindoll, in a sermon on this subject, is the only one I have uh, found that answers the question. He says this, and I quote. He points out that the holy kiss was once attached to the Lord's table, and that I have been able to document. That's uh, pretty well established in church history. Then Swindoll goes on to say, and I quote from his sermon, and then they would, upon leaving, pause to kiss one another on each cheek. Some that were intimate friends or relatives would actually plant the kiss on the mouth. Time passed. Persecutions waned. Prosperity came. And in the love feast, there came to be the kiss on the forehead. And then years passed. And the kiss came on the hand and then on the fingertips, and then they began to kiss the common cup. They would pass it to the next person and plant a kiss on the cup or some common thing. And then they began a kiss of a leather sheath in which was placed a scroll, and finally a little piece of leather from it and pieces of wood upon which were marked the etchings of Christian beliefs, and then pieces of metal, and finally pieces of paper, until it eroded into what we have today. No kiss at all. Just coming, meeting, and what would be called a rather cool formality. We all sit facing one way, we have no idea, unless we're rude enough to turn around and look five rows back, as to who's sitting behind. We really are not even supposed to care. Interesting migration of the kiss, from a kiss on the face to a kiss on the forehead to a kiss on the hand to a kiss of some common object to no kiss at all. May I suggest that this passage of Scripture and the other injunctions like it in the New Testament are telling us that we should affectionately greet one another when we come to church. Now, whether or not we actually kiss one another, I'm not trying to be that rigid about it, but I think the principle at least ought to apply, and that is that we affectionately greet one another. I have felt this way for years and years and years. My version of this is to hug people. Um, when I traveled, I didn't do that for fear somebody would think I was going around hugging everybody for the wrong reason. But I can remember 
back in those days thinking, one of these days I hope I'm an old man with gray hair so I can get away with hugging everybody and nobody would think anything about it. And then I decided they would think I was a dirty old man. <laughs> so I just decided to do it anyway and let them think what they wanted to. So when I became a pastor, I decided I was going to hug people. And for, yay, nigh almost to 10 years, I've gotten away with it. I want you to know, people have come to me in tears. Men and women and said, you will never know. You will never know what you just hugging me did for me when I came to church. I say, what happened to the kiss? All right, so you don't want to kiss each other. You're afraid you'll get germs. Fine. At least heartily shake hands and hug each other. How's that? Is that New Testament? Or is that New Testament? How about doing it before the service? Many a time I've been in a service when the minister of music said, stand up, greet everybody, and shake their hand. Terrific time, right in the middle of a service, before God and everybody just hug each other. Wouldn't that be great? Or after the service as well. Matter of fact, I have a pastor friend, and I've spoken in his church many times, and he punctuates every service, every service. He ends it by saying, amen, at the end of his prayer, greet one another. And with that, they're dismissed to greet one another. Superb idea. Chuck Swindoll began uh, one of his messages with a rather startling statement. Quote, church is to be a place of open affection. He went on to say, it is difficult for us to express our love and affection even to the point of embracing and kissing. Those words sound strange and unfamiliar to us. How often people come into a church looking for that kind of warmth and never find it. End of quote. Chuck, I say amen and amen and amen. There ought to be open affection, a hearty handshake, a high, a hug, whatever, even a holy kiss. Boy, what would it be like to be a member of a church where everybody walked around with a kiss planted on their cheek? Wouldn't that be great? Some of you look excited and some of you look scared. <laughs> I know a lady who is very outwardly affectionate. She works in a high school and uh, has a habit of kissing all the kids. I mean, when she gets there in the morning, she kisses them all. So they all walk around with a little bit of red lipstick on their cheek. Oh, sometime back she got sick. She wasn't able to go, and then one day she appeared up, and a teacher said to her in the middle of the day, um, I knew you were here today. 
I saw the red lipstick on the cheeks of all those kids before I saw you. That lady, by the way, is a member of our church. She uh, translates for me to the deaf. And I thought to myself, when she told me that story, that's great. Let's plant a bunch of people at the door, and everybody that comes in gets a kiss. And a little blob of red lipstick right on the cheek. I love it. Greet one another with a holy kiss. There ought to be open affection, in the words of Chuck Swindoll, at church. Amen. Amen. Well, that just means we kiss everybody, right? Well, there's another side to this truth. And that's what we've got to look at next. Look at Romans chapter 16 and look at verse 17. He said, Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrines which you learned and avoid them. Wow! The exact opposite of what he's just said. He says there are people you ought to note and avoid. The word that's translated note means to look at, to watch, to contemplate. You are to note certain people. Just watch them. Who? Well, he explains. He says in verse 17, those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you, have been, which you have learned. Now, when he says doctrine, that just means all the teachings that you have received. If people start teaching something contrary to what I've taught or what the apostles have taught, or for that matter, what the New Testament teaches, then those are the people you need to watch. He calls these divisive people. That same Greek word appears in the list of the works of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5. There are people who are divisive. And these particular people, he says, cause offenses. And that's the same Greek word that appeared earlier in the book of Romans in chapter 14, verse 13, where it talked about causing a weaker brother to stumble. So you are to particularly take note of people who start doing things, perhaps teaching things even, contrary to what the New Testament says, and you are to avoid them. That's what verse 17 says. Note and avoid. Now, what is he talking about? Well, this same kind of language is used in other passages in the New Testament to talk about what is popularly referred to as church discipline. Now, I think in order to get the full picture of what the New Testament teaches on the subject, all of these passages need to be studied and put together. But basically what it boils down to is this. There are passages in the New Testament that teach that if a believer who's a member of a local congregation does something that is contrary to the New Testament. In almost all of the passages, the issues are moral. As a matter of fact, if you look at the list of offenses, they are almost all overtly external moral behaviors. 
though there are a couple that maybe don't quite fit that description. And he says those people are to be disciplined. The scripture is very clear about laying out the pattern for church discipline. First, the individual is to be approached privately, personally, and confronted. If that does not work, if there is no repentance at that juncture, you are to take someone with you, and the two of you are to confront that person, and then eventually it gets before the whole church. If you look at all the passages on church discipline in the New Testament, you will discover that the idea of avoiding a person comes only after there has been a process of church discipline. But be all that as it may, there is no getting around the fact that the New Testament teaches that there are some people who are to be avoided. Let me illustrate. One of the passages on discipline in the New Testament is the book of Titus. That book, as well as 2 Thessalonians, gives us two of the clear-cut cases of church discipline, also 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Let me take one of them and um, talk about it. Let me take the one in Titus. Uh, apparently, by piecing together all that's going on in the little book of Titus, what was happening is some people in the church were starting with the list of genealogies in the Old Testament. They were lifting a name. They were then constructing stories around that name, fables they're called in the pastoral epistles. And then from those fables, they were uh, getting some commandments of men that really nullified the commandments of God. And in the case of Crete, those uh, instructions were being very divisive. And so Paul instructs Titus that those kinds of people are to be rejected. Matter of fact, uh, look at Titus chapter 3 for a moment. And look at verse 9. Titus 3.9 says, Avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. And this is the sum, the summary description of what he has said earlier in the book about what these people were doing. The strivings about the law or what they were doing with the list of genealogies and the fables that he refers to earlier. Now he says this, verse 10, reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. Same thing that's being told to us in Romans chapter 16, only in Titus chapter 3, there is a little more information. That this kind of person is to be avoided, this kind of person is to be rejected after the first and second admonition, meaning after stage one and stage two of the discipline process. But both passages are talking about church discipline, and both passages are talking about the church discipline of a divisive person. That's why I chose Titus and not 1 Corinthians 5 or 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. The cases of church discipline in those other cases, one has to do with immorality, and the other has to do with someone who has stopped working and who has become a busybody in the congregation. And yet there is a sense in which, in both of those cases, there is divisiveness. The person who ceased the work in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 had become a busybody and had become a divisive issue in the congregation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the man 
and immorality was a case of publicly known immorality, and it had become a blight on the congregation. And in that sense, it too had become a divisive issue. But clearly, Romans 16 is teaching that you, after the process of church discipline, are to avoid a divisive person. If a person arises in a congregation who becomes divisive, whatever the reason, he is to be avoided. Now, let's go back to Romans chapter 16 for a second. In the next verse, he tells us why we should do this. He says, in verse 18, For those who are such do not serve the Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that um, they were literally serving their stomach, or for that matter, even their body. The word belly is being used here to simply indicate they were serving themselves in contrast to serving Jesus Christ. So he says one of the reasons that you ought to avoid these kind of people is they're not serving the Lord. They're only serving themselves. They have become divisive in the congregation. They're making an issue out of something they ought not make an issue out of. They are going contrary to what the New Testament teaches. And if you get close to that person, they are going to affect you because they are not serving Jesus Christ. They are serving their own selves. I think there are a whole lot of forms of this. I think I have known divisive people who were really like Diotrephes in 3 John. They simply wanted to have the place of preeminence. And they were jealous of someone else who had it. And consequently, they wanted it and were making ripples in the congregation so they could get it. The second reason he says you ought to avoid these people in verse 18 is because of their effect on others. He says, by smooth words and flattering speech, they will deceive the hearts of the simple. Notice he says, by smooth words. The Greek word translated smooth means good, kind, gracious words. That's fascinating. They aren't going to use hateful and hostile words. They're going to be smooth with finesse. They're going to be good and kind and gracious. And in that is the problem. Furthermore, he says in verse 18, they're going to use flattering speech. And the idea is they're going to be very gracious and kind. And they're going to praise you. They will use flattering speech. And because they cover up their wickedness with uh, smooth words and flattering speech, they deceive the simple. The simple. That is the gullible. The naive those that uh, readily believe everything they hear. There is a proverb in chapter 14, verse 15, that says, and I quote, the simple believe every word. Proverbs 14, 15. The simple believe every 
word. So, when somebody comes along and speaks good, kind, gracious words and is praising you, this gullible, naive person will drink it all in and be deceived by it. A Bible teacher of another generation, M.M.R. Dahan, trying to illustrate this point, and he told of um, a boy who was having a problem with his chickens, lived on a farm, and uh, rats, big rats, were uh, eating the chicken feed in the chicken yard. So the little boy went to his grandfather and said, what do we do about this? And he said, it's real simple. You set a rat trap. I happen to have some. So they got these rat traps with these big iron clamps on them, and they set them out in the chicken yard, and the rats didn't get caught. Now, the grandfather didn't know a whole lot about rat traps or chickens and the like, and so some former friend said, look, rats know better than to go walking into a trap. You got to camouflage this thing. You got to cover it up with food. And that they did, and sure enough, they caught a rat. Now, these kinds of divisive people know that if you just come out and say, look, I'm going to be divisive and that, nobody's going to buy that. So they cover it up with uh, good-sounding words. But underneath, there is anger, bitterness, jealousy, envy, a desire to have the preeminence, a wrong motive, self-seeking. And they cover it up with good-sounding words and the simple buy into it. Now, that's why Paul says, look, you've you got to deal with this in a congregation. You don't let that kind of thing go on because of the effect it will have on the gullible. Now, I guess bringing that up seems to imply that uh, the church at Rome was sort of simple. So he has to correct that, and that's precisely what he does in the next verse. He says in verse 19, uh, For your obedience has become known to all, well, now, why did you bring that up? Well, what's the connection between verse 19 and verse 18? Well, keep reading. He says, therefore, I am glad on your behalf, but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. So obviously the connection between verse 19 and verse 18 is the word simple. He's brought up the fact that uh, divisive people deceive simple people, and so he wants to quickly clarify and say, I'm not implying that you have the problem, nor am I implying that you are simple. And he clearly states, verse 19, your obedience has become well known. You're obeying these instructions. And I take it he means by that to note and avoid those who are divisive, as well as to greet one another with a holy kiss. But he says, what I want is, I want you to be wise in what is good, and I want you to be simple concerning evil. So he says, just want to clarify, I'm not suggesting that you have the problem or that you are a simpleton. Then he concludes this little paragraph with something of a doxology, and he says, 
And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. So he acknowledges their obedience and God's faithfulness. He seems to be implying that divisiveness comes from Satan and that God will come in the terms of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And when he does, he will crush Satan. And he says that's going to happen. He expected it to happen any moment. And then he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. A typical New Testament benediction. But notice, he calls God the God of peace and Christ the God of grace. And that's no accident. He doesn't just do that because it's the customary thing to do in a benediction. But the whole point of this passage is there is divisiveness and what you need is peace. And God is the author of peace. Satan is the author of division and God is the God of peace. And in order for there to be peace, there must be grace. And so... As you receive grace from God and peace from God and you are obedient to the word of God, then you will experience grace and peace and harmony and love in the congregation without being hurt or threatened by divisive people. Who should you avoid? Answer, you should avoid those who are divisive. Now, Somebody might just say, but isn't that sort of a contradictory message? I mean, the, the kiss everybody part seems to me like you're saying, love everybody. And then you turn right around and say, but you need to avoid some people. And isn't that sort of a contradiction in terms? If you're going to love everybody, love everybody. Why avoid some? So let me just make one observation before I close. And it is simply this, to practice church discipline, to go through the process and actually avoid somebody, because the scripture tells you to, is an act of love. Matter of fact, to discipline somebody is not to punish them. I'm of the opinion that... Um, there is no passage in the New Testament that gives a church the warrant to punish anybody. That's not the point. But rather, discipline, all discipline, is for correction and restoration, not for punishment. So in that sense, when it's done biblically and right, it's done to help the person, which is an act of love. It's not done to hurt the person. Let me show you that. Uh, turn to one of those other passages on church discipline, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. There is nothing hateful or hostile in all of this. It's to be done in love for the benefit of the person. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 14. And this passage is talking about church discipline, and it says, If anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person. Huh. Isn't that interesting? What Romans 16 says. Note that person. 
and he says do not keep company with him exactly what uh, Romans says avoid him now he gives us the purpose that he may be ashamed so kissing somebody with a holy kiss is a sign of affection and love it's called a holy kiss of love and disciplining somebody even avoiding them when properly done according to the process of church discipline is also a manifestation of love matter of fact the Apostle Paul goes on to say in the next verse do not count him as an enemy that has nothing to do with this but admonish him as a brother we're to love one another that means greet one another affectionately and if need be discipline one another I wrestled with Romans 16 when I first saw that it says kiss in one verse and avoid in the next, I thought, wow, what's going on? And I wrestled with, for some time with trying to put that together. And it was as I looked at these other passages I've shared with you that I came to the conclusion that this is really saying these are two manifestations of love. And then I, I had done some reading. I peeled another book off the shelf from a man I greatly admire have read a lot about and from and it occurred to me I wonder what he has to say on this passage and sure enough I found that Donald Gray Barnhouse came to the same conclusion he said on this verse in Romans 16 and I quote what is the overall picture in the New Testament as to how these men should be treated? Some of them may be truly saved. We are to love all men, and we are to love these men. We are to treat them as brothers as much as possible, even though they merit rebuke. They are to be admonished, and demonished again. If they do not respond, then they are to be avoided. Paul wrote to Titus, as for a man who is sectarian, after admonishing him once or twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is perverted and sinful, he is self-condemned. End of quote. Dr. Barnhouse understood. We are to love all, and that may include discipline. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a loving Father, that you have embraced us and kissed us. You've invited us to kiss the Son, the Psalms. But as a loving Father, you also discipline us, and though that discipline is sometimes painful. None of it is really enjoyable. We thank you that you love us and you deal with us in a loving way, even when that includes discipline.
thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.